Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. A warm welcome to all our listeners of Ramadan Radio London on 87.9 FM, streaming live on Facebook, YouTube, and online. We greet you all with the greetings of Islam and peace. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You are currently tuned in to the Imams in the Community Show, which is a weekly show where we are in discussion with various Imams and scholars regarding their journeys and community efforts, aiding us to appreciate scholarship better and really understand some of the grassroots works that are going on in our local communities in London. Alhamdulillah, this week we are very fortunate to be joined by the eminent Sheikh Mufti Abdurrahman Mangera, Hafizahullah. Mufti Sab really needs no introduction to our listeners, but just to share a short bi biography, just to remind us all. Mufti Abdurrahman is a British Muslim scholar educated in both the Islamic and Western traditions. He memorized the Quran by heart and graduated from the first Islamic seminary to be established in the UK, which is the Darul Ulum Beri. Post-graduation, his passion for seeking knowledge led him to further his studies in South Africa, Syria, and also India eventually earning a specialized license as a mufti from the prestigious Madhahirun Ulum Saharanpur. He also earned his BA from the University of Johannesburg in South Africa and completed his MA and PhD in Islamic studies from the SOAS University of London. Mufti Abdurrahman also has a unique experience of serving as an imam in Muslim communities on both sides of the Atlantic, eight years in Southern California and over five years in our great city of London. And his continued work as an international speaker and lecturer enables him to address and offer pertinent advice on current challenges that Muslims face in the West. Recently, he also founded the White Thread Institute, which is a postgraduate institute for Islamic scholars and graduates. And he's also an avid traveler and continues to teach hadith and work on scholarly publications through his White Thread uh, Press. And his lectures and courses are available on Zamzam Academy and Rayyan Institute. So without any further ado, we would like to introduce you all to our respected guest for today, Mufti Abdurrahman Mangera. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair uh, uh, for this opportunity, this honor to have this discourse, inshallah, about uh, you know the various different things, inshallah, for our listeners. Allah bless you. Ameen. And we're very... Uh, grateful that you've been able to give us some of your time from your busy schedule to join us today and talk about some of these efforts, uh, inshallah. How have you been keeping today, Mufti Saab, and how's your Ramadan been going so far? Yeah, Ramadan is just very busy. There's <laughs> like, uh, I mean, it's a good thing. There's a slot for everything and uh, alhamdulillah. I mean, it keeps us busy. Hopefully we can be productive. And uh, I, I can say I only have like half an hour free time a day, but I think that's a good thing. I'm not complaining, inshallah. Um, May Allah bless you for all your efforts Now um, to start off with Upon having just read your biography I'm sure something that really stood out To all of our listeners Was both the breadth and diversity Of your studies Having mashallah as we heard Studied in many countries And in both the traditional and western uh, spheres So we'd like you to start um, By requesting you to share with our listeners Some of your reflections From being a young student of knowledge and in particular regarding what pushed you as a young British Muslim, like many of our youngsters today, to pursue such extensive studies of the religion. Um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I, I think uh, I'd have to give most of the uh, 
the credit there to my parents and my extended family. Alhamdulillah, I, I think I was just lucky to be born in a family that had quite a few hafiz of the Quran, people who memorize the Quran, quite a few people who studied the Sharia in depth. And for example, uh, my grandfather from my father's side was a hafiz of the Quran. My grandfather from my mum's side of the Quran, uh, mum's side was also a hafiz of the Quran and a qari who studied in Lucknow, though we're originally from Gujarat in India. And then my father uh, had studied and graduated as an alim as well. My uncle was a mufti. Another uncle was a hafiz of the Quran. So. It, it kind of ran in the family, but I would say that, I mean, just because something runs in the family, I've actually seen sometimes where people um, have an aversion to what their family does, whether that's to do with business. So if their family, I, I've actually seen where there's families with all doctors in their family, and I've spoken to some of these children, they just don't want to be a doctor. They want to do something else, but their families want them to be a doctor. Likewise, I've seen, I've seen cases where um, the family's into a particular business, but the children want to do something totally different. They want to be a designer or something. Right. So uh, I've thought about that for a long time. I kept saying that is just because it was all of that. But I think I think the bigger thing was that while we had all of these people in our family, I think this is what I think can be helpful. And so, look, if you're born in a family, if you're born in a family that doesn't have that kind of an environment or that kind of uh, parents or whatever, or if you are somebody who's not a scholar or whatever, and you're worried about your children, then my situation I can't transfer to somebody else because you either have scholars in your family or you don't, right? So that's not something which is very transferable, at least in the current generation. I mean, you can do that for your next generation. But I think there's one transferable uh, point here that I have, which is that Alhamdulillah, rather than rebel against the system, rather than say, hey, I don't want to do that. Uh, the reason why I think I also was really, really, really inspired to, to study was because the religion and religious people, like good religious people and scholars were glorified in our home. What that meant is that they always spoke about religion in a, uh, in a, in, in a really respectful sense, glorifying sense, celebrating sense. If a scholar had come out of town in those days, we didn't have too many local scholars, right? Uh, uh, British born, because when I was growing up in the 1980s, um, there were very few local graduates. Most of them were Urdu speaking from abroad. But generally, whenever they came, there was a lot of respect shown about them. We didn't criticize the scholars, right? We didn't put them down. We didn't say bad things about them, right? Uh, this isn't to say that you're covering somebody's mistake or something like that. It's just that there was just this thing about somebody became a Hafiz of the Quran, like an extended relative or somebody we knew became Hafiz of the Quran. It's like, mashallah, you know, uh, he's become a Hafiz of the Quran. Look what he's earned, look what he gets, you know, it was glorified, religion was glorified, and I think that's something everybody can do, is respect knowledge, respect people of knowledge, respect the Quran, respect Islamic features, Islamic salient signs and features like Ramadan and other things, show it to be something that you're concerned about, right, and of course the parents and the extended family have to practice this kind of stuff to show that it works for them, it, it makes them tick, it makes them enriched and i think that will then pay off with your children that's what i would say i'm the product of that i think and that's something i think you can and everybody can do uh, in their own homes as well that's what we try to do in our home we try to glorify the religion not shove it down the children's throats 
you know, of course, you do have to something like encourage them when they get a bit bored when they're doing the memorizing the Quran. Alhamdulillah, um, except the last one, last one, the, my last child has done about ten Jews of the Quran or eleven Jews. The others are finished, so he's inshallah carried. So you do have to encourage them sometimes. They all want to do it, but they get lazy a bit, a bit sometimes, get a bit distracted sometimes. So you do have to encourage and uh, put a bit of pressure sometimes, but you have to glorify and show what you get from it and what's the purpose of it, what they get. So even nowadays, uh, after Tarawih, when we do a Tarawih at home, and then we actually read from a book that Torah has published called uh, The Life of a Muslim by uh, and essentially it goes through you know everything that's important for a muslim so we read from it and then we explain it and we if there's a discussion to be had so i think that's very important to have that flow parents to children and have that open relationship about the faith yes that's a very pertinent point there and a very um, important advice for many of our muslim families today and how to inculcate that love and that longing for the religion, because many people, I also experience that, they feel that disconnect with the religion um, for the reason that there isn't that aspect of love. It's always about force. But when they have that aspect of love, it really does help enrich the experience, mashallah. Now, moving on to our next question, Mufti Sahaba, after completing your initial studies, uh, you were fortunate to have the unique experience of serving as an imam, which is a really a great role. And you were an imam both in America, in California, I believe, for over eight, around eight years, and about five years in London. Now, I'm sure during that time, you must have picked up so many different experiences. So based on these experiences, uh, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges and needs of the Muslims in this time, particularly in the modern Western world? I think there's quite a few challenges, and there's quite a few challenges I've got several lectures that are trying to deal with some of these challenges. I would say, first and foremost, um, when you, you see, when you're living in the West, you're living in various different paradigms. I think let's break it down. You're living in various different paradigms. So firstly, if you're an immigrant uh, from immigrant parents from Egypt, Somalia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, whatever, there's going to be that particular culture that you're still part of, regardless of what say anybody says about culture. Culture is probably one of the most powerful force in anybody's life. Okay, it's the most powerful force in anybody's life. So now we have many cultures to contend with. So one is if we are from immigrant families, then we've got that culture, which doesn't leave you very you know quickly. It's 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 a culture you have. Then after that, we've got what. It is considered to be the British culture or the Western culture, broadly speaking. But I think America is very different from Britain. They're both West, but I've traveled to many Western countries and they all have differences. So Denmark is a very different Western culture to what we have in the UK. And the UK is starkly different to the US, right? Very, very different, in fact. So we, we're, we're dealing with that culture. We were brought up in the schools here. We, we deal with the culture outside. This is the kind of clothing that we wear, you know, a mixture of clothing actually in a Western plus. So then the third culture that we have to is the Islamic culture, which is supposed to kind of supersede all of this and not supersede, but inform all of this. And you can say temper all of this and mold all of this and, um, you can say, uh, yeah, it's supposed to guide all of this. So as Muslims in the West, if you're in Egypt, uh, well, if you're in a Muslim country like Mauritania, 
there's just single culture you have to worry about, right? Which is all mixed together. It's an amalgamated um, West African, uh, Arab, uh, West African, Arab, Muslim culture all mixed in one, right? Everybody's, uh, homo there, there's, there's a homogeneity down there. So it's very easy, right? Everybody's doing the same thing. Whereas here, we can be very different to our neighbors because they may be from Eastern Europe. They may be from originally from the Caribbean. They may be uh, English, you know, original Anglo-Saxon. So there's a lot of challenges that itself brings because you're in constant touch with different people. So there's a confusion for a lot of people. And again, if the parents and the teachers have not nurtured the best way to deal with all of these things, it's going to be quite complicated to say what is right and what is wrong. Not everybody has that kind of understanding of what's good and bad, what's beneficial, what is harmful. There's lots of aspects of the British culture, the UK, the, the English culture as such, right? That is very, very good, right? That we don't have in even Muslim countries. There's some really good aspects of that. There's some really good aspects of Indian culture, like I can relate to, Pakistani culture, Somalian culture. But then there's some problematic aspects of all of these cultures. And then what's the Islamic paradigm? So when you're trying to deal with all of these three paradigms, it can get very confusing. I was lucky that because I went to study and uh, I, I was able to figure my, I mean, it wasn't easy. There were obviously challenges like, is this right? Is this wrong? Can I do this? Can I not do that? So that is the biggest challenge is to try to fit in. And I think what can help in that regard is to be in touch with scholarship even if you cannot be a scholar, not everybody's going to be a scholar. You know, you're going into medicine, you're going into engineering, you're becoming an accountant, that's fine. But I would always say that try to take some courses somewhere, right? To learn more about your faith, because that's what sets us apart as being Muslim. Otherwise, you're just a normal other human being that's going to a job from nine to five or whatever it is, the rat race of the world. What sets you and I apart is that we also have a faith that's still a living faith. It's not a dormant faith. It's not a Sunday faith right? Or uh, it, it's an everyday faith. And for that, we need to, the, the, the amount of Islam that we have growing up, that we assimilate, you know, on a basic level, maybe from our parents, maybe from some teachers that we studied by, is really just rudimentary. We actually need that understanding when we become mature, when we really start thinking for ourselves, then while all of that helps, but now we need another level. And a lot of people just don't bother carrying on. This, I think, is the biggest malady and the biggest challenge in the West is because, because the culture is not so-called Islamic as such, right? You know, there's parts of it which are good, there's parts of it which are bad, but it's not Islamic as such. So that's why you can't just carry on and say, everybody's doing this, so let me do that as well. You can't do that because everybody's going to the pub on, in the evenings, right? Everybody wants to go to a club. Everybody wants to have a girlfriend and a boyfriend. Everybody wants to, you know, get riba-based uh, loans, you know, uh, everybody wants to eat at, uh, you know, McDonald's burgers or, you know, whatever. So you can't just, you can't just basically uh, go with the flow. There, there's challenge. That's the challenge. That's why I think the benefit is that if you can co connect yourself with scholars, with knowledge, with some kind of good movement that is education and in that sense, then it's really easy because you, you need a sense of belonging as well. So belonging is the other challenge. Who do you belong to? Which culture do you belong to? And if you don't have, if you're living out there um, uh, where there's not a Muslim community, then it's going to be very, very, very difficult. 
I've, I've had many Jewish friends I've spoken to, you know, I've, I've had interfaith programs with many Jewish uh, friends. And um, what's really interesting in many Jewish communities is that even if they're not practicing Jews, even if they're secular Jews, many of them, in fact, even some godless Jews, I mean, can you believe it? They're, they call themselves Jews, but they don't believe in God necessarily, all right, which is really strange. But they would like to live in a Jewish area. Yeah, because the culture is there. They still, rate, they still value the culture. Right. So that's why living in a Muslim area helps. I know sometimes in some very tight knit, not Muslim, but ethnic areas, it can be a bit suffocating, a bit stifling or whatever. But, you know, you need to decide where you want to be. Right. And there's, there's there's the good and bad. This is, this, that's the nature of the world, I guess. It's not paradise. Well, whilst mentioning there, Mufti Sahib, about connecting with scholars and courses and Muslim communities, I guess in today's time, it's probably even easier with the online world that we have, right? Very easy, very easy, mashallah, very easy. Mashallah. And one of the ways that you yourself actually are continuing to benefit Muslim communities is imparting knowledge uh, via various online platforms. For example, you have the Zamzam Academy and the Rayyan Institute. So I'd like you to enlighten us on some of your views on the benefits of using such learning platforms, maybe versus um, actually going to your local masjid and sitting in maybe some of the classes. And the general importance of seeking knowledge using, you know, these new forms of media and online platforms. I, I would, I mean, I would probably start off by saying that there's probably no absolute alternative uh, in terms of physical benefit uh, that you can get by actually studying at the feet of someone, like in a personal contact with the right kind of compassionate, loving teacher. There's just nothing that beats that. But the problem is that not everybody gets that access. And if we look at our sisters, uh, there's just not enough female scholarship to do that. And there's obviously challenges when they have to go to male scholars, though, mashallah, you know, that has been facilitated so far. That's why the online world has really, really opened that entire. Now, we've been we've been doing online teaching for, I would say, at least 15, 15 or 20 years. Right. So starting from America, where we established Zamzam Academy. Um, that was it actually started off by being taught on site. The lectures were put up. And then after that, we started some online courses, right? There's some really early courses that we did online. And we still have some actually students from that time, you know, for 20 years, mashallah. Uh, but then, then what happened with the lockdown last year is that it pretty much forced people to embrace the online teaching because a lot of people that had a, quite a few qualms about the whole online teaching platform that there's no spirituality in there it's not really the same thing as being physically sitting now we know that there's nothing compared to that but where you don't have access and there's people in rural areas or there's people in built-up areas but there's not there's not much teaching going on there's bayans you know most masjids and places will have lectures now lectures are to just inspire but the next step is to do some hard learning right based on some courses like science of hadith science of fiqh learn your uh, your, your, your rulings on fasting, learn your rulings on Hajj, if you're going for Hajj. I guess people do go and learn there. That's one thing that everybody goes and learns, you know, about Hajj, right? I think that's probably the one thing that everybody goes and learns, okay? But then to learn about all of these things is very, very, very important. You may not have anybody locally for that. So that's why the online world opens all of that up for you, mashallah. And then it's at your convenience as well, because sometimes there's a class taking place at seven o'clock. You can't be there at seven o'clock. You have to be somewhere else or you work or something like that. Well, mashallah, that's why most of our courses, in fact, our Rayyan Institute. So we've got three plat platforms that we're working on, right? Three or four platforms. The first is Zamzam Academy, which is general lectures. 
and he used to have courses on there as well. It's just general lectures absolutely for free. There's, I don't know, 900, nearly a thousand lectures on there probably, right? On various different subjects that people just can come from and mashallah people do. Uh, now, once you listen to a lecture, once you get the lectures done and you get motivated, whatever, the next step needs to be that you do some solid study, right? As a common person, a normal person, a working person, whatever. So that's why we then establish Rayyan Institute. That provides just general courses, not for scholars, but just for anybody, right? And it's got lots of courses. Out of that, there's a, a 20 short course selection called the Islamic Essentials Collection. So we're saying that anybody who comes and takes that, it could take several months at your convenience, right? A few hours a week, that's all you need. And you finish it within a year, you would, mashallah, at least become knowledgeable of all the fundamental aspects about Islam, all the way from your hadith, a bit of history, Quran, um, uh, the, the tafsir, and uh, your fiqh and your aqidah, and, uh, you know, mashallah. So the, it's a really well tailored course that I would really suggest people go and take. And then there's some other elective courses on there. Now, the only thing then, uh, the, the next step would then be if somebody's really inspired, then they become an alim. So they took, take a formal study to actually become a scholar. We don't have that because there's lots of other places that are providing that, mashallah, even online now, right? Before they used to be generally on site. Now they're providing it online, both for brothers and sisters. Then after they graduate, after students graduate as scholars or graduates, there was a gap. That's where this White Thread Institute came in, right? That what do our, what, can we offer for postgraduate studies, advanced studies? Like, okay, now you've done six years or five years of in-depth study. It doesn't end there, to be honest. That's just the preparation, as you know, right? You've finished recently, what, two years ago or something, or three years ago, right? Yeah, it's a year ago. So there needs to be, con uh, you know, there needs to be a constant professional development, right? And that's what we're trying to provide. So we've got several courses on there for scholars, but some of those courses can actually be taken by others as well like the jurisprudence course, as long as you know Arabic, you can take the advanced jurisprudence course. You can take the advanced tafsir course, which is a really wonderful course. Um, and then we've got the advanced theology course, half of which is entirely in English. So anybody can take that. That's called a mastering master course on philosophy, science and religion, right? That's a really, really good course for those who are interested in that subject, university students and others. Then we've got the flagship program, which is the IFTA course, which is a two year, very rigorous course in which uh, we really, really take the best of uh, graduates to try to train them in the fatwa giving process. And that is, uh, that's a really full-time job as it is. And mashallah, based on our uh, first set of graduates, and now inshallah this year, our second cohort of students should be graduating. These are two-year courses essentially, all right? So alhamdulillah, we've actually now developed a fatwa center this is your Darul Ifta Fatwa Center. We've not really promoted it much because we're getting so many questions already. We used to get those questions at Zamzam Academy. I just couldn't deal with all of them. So now we formalized it into Fatwa Center. And our Ifta research fellows, we don't call them Mufti yet. You know, they'll get a Mufti title maybe after a few years when they've really proven themselves. Otherwise, one or two years of Ifta study, you get a title of Mufti, right? Like I did, you know, like many people do. I don't think it cuts it. All right, so we call them iftar research fellows because that's what they are. And mashallah, they're doing a wonderful job. And we've got brothers and sisters in that regard. So we've got at least one of our students uh, is a female who graduated. We've got another two coming up, inshallah. So mashallah, they're doing very well as well, right? They're doing very well as well. And they will be answering questions. Then we used to get a lot of questions on menstruation, right? But there was so much ignorance on the subject of purity and menstruation for women. And they were hardly 
you know, there weren't too many people to answer that question. And if they were, they would be men and women would find it embarrassing sometimes to go there. So finally, after teaching this subject for 10 years to, you know, hundreds of women, mashallah and alimas, we finally now developed menstrual matters. You can go there through uh, whitethread.org slash menstrual matters. And mashallah, it's an entire website dedicated to everything to do with menstrual matters. You know, you can go there and you can learn the essentials. You can read up uh, and then you can even ask questions, right? And your questions are answered by a team of women, mashallah, right? And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's essentially the hierarchy that we're trying to cater at every level. The only one that's missing is an alim course because mashallah, so many others are doing it. Alhamdulillah. May Allah make them prosperous. I mean, is there a plan maybe to offer an alim course in the future? We'll see. We'll see what the demand is in the future. Um, I think there's still, um, you see, what we try to do as far as possible is when we do something, we, 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 we do it well. So we're not in the business of competition. Like just because somebody else is doing something, let's do it as well. We just shun that. What we're really looking for, White Thread, I would say our unique feature is that we're looking for gaps in the market. So, you know, there was no postgraduate. So we said, let's start that. Right. There was a gap for just common courses. Let's do that. Uh, for menstrual matters, there's a massive gap. Alhamdulillah, we're filling that up. There are other people who are trying to do it as well. We're trying to fill that. And then fatwa centers, there can't be enough of them. There's just, mashallah, so many Darul Iftas and they're all, you know, maxed out. We have to actually regulate how many questions we can receive a day. So um, if we're going to do one, if we have sufficient graduates, because what we think we need is a certain mindset uh, of the alim who really understands the breadth and scope of the society, everything as well you know, who marries the context with the tradition, right? Text to context, right, as such. So if we get enough of that and we see that there's a demand, because I think there still is a, uh, a need for a flagship Alim program where it takes just the absolute cream of the crop, best students re really rigorous, rigorously tested, and then it takes them from a, through a very, very rigorous course, right? I think there is a room for that. There is definitely a room for that. And if somebody else doesn't provide it, then, you know, maybe we can provide in the future. But, we, you know, the other thing is what the other thing that we, I've learned, you know, because I've been doing this for quite a while uh, and taken a lot of good advice from people is don't rush into things and do it in a half-hearted half way or in a haphazard way or in an incomplete way. If you're going to do something, do it properly. Otherwise, don't bother doing it. Right? Because I think that's wrong. There's uh, an organization that contacted me. They've got a building. They have children's classes and other classes in the morning and they've got space so they said we want to start an alima course i said fine start an alima course but make sure it's top spec otherwise don't bother doing it I said oh but we can't find those teachers whatever but at least somebody will benefit i said well you just you're you're telling people that they're coming here for a solid alima course but they're not going to be it's not going to be very well it's not going to be very well done so don't bother doing it so I believe that if you do something, do it well. For example, our tafsir program is a one-year program. In many other places, they do a tafsir program that is probably shorter than ours, and they call it a specialization program. And I think that's a really bad idea. It's, you can't be a specialist in tafsir in one year. It's just nobody can. I mean, well, very few people could. It's just an advanced course. That's what we call our course. We call it an advanced course. Our jurisprudence course, we call it an advanced course, not a specialization. We have only one specialization course, which is the IFTA course, because that is really a specialization course as far as we can, you know, we can take it. So we, we try to name things correctly. We try to keep things balanced and we only try to do what we can. There's lots of ideas people pour into us, do this, do that. 
we only do it if we have the manpower and we can do it properly. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Don't do anything half-baked. That's why, inshallah, you'll get quality with white thread, inshallah. May Allah allow us to maintain that. That's very important. I mean, another interesting point that you did just touch on was female scholarship and our Muslim sisters studying Islamic knowledge. Now, generally in society, we see today that when it comes to the sisters studying the deen, it's not expected of them that they achieve as highly as the males. And a lot of the time, the standards um, in the places where females are being taught are not expected to be very high. And a lot of places are happy with kind of mediocrity and not trying to achieve so much. What would be your views on this? And, you know, what should be our attitude towards the, the education, the dini education of our Muslim sisters? Yeah, you, you see, look, I believe that women are capable, but there's a few disadvantages. There, the women are definitely, I mean, we have, um, at some times, we've actually had our best students being women, right? Compared to the men as well. So in terms of just understanding, ability to write, to uh, to, to, to understand, you know, mashallah, phenomenal people as well, right? No doubt. But there's one disadvantage that is across the board so far, which may, 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 I doubt it though. I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't know if it's ever going to be sorted, but it's just women are never going to have the access that men have to just wider scholarship because most scholars are men. All right. And, you know, there's an etiquette and an other between women and men. And we've seen abuses when it gets to when it gets a bit too close or too free. We've seen abuses of that. So that's why women are always going to. Um, there's going to uh, you know, it's going to be more of a struggle for women to become masters, to become proficient uh, in at a high level in the wide scope of sciences. Right. Because, number one, they're not all being provided to women like, you know, in-depth hadith studies, in-depth uh, fiqh maybe right now, but it's just very difficult for them to get that, to rub shoulders with other experts in the field. Like for men, you know, the scholar that's come to the masjid, by default, you're going to be in the masjid, you'll benefit from that. You can speak to them. You may have a little chat. Women just can't do that. So that's a big disadvantage. The second disadvantage, um, which is a natural one, and I've come to terms with it, right? Before I used to have a lot of problem with this, but I've come to terms with it. But the prime, not, not problems in the sense that I, not problems with it because of what it is, but I just didn't understand it. So I used to complain a lot that why can't we produce top grade alimas? We can, uh, we can provide, we can produce top grade alimas, but it's always going to be difficult for them to just be completely, you know, uh, have that kind of breadth of learning because the access isn't there yet maybe it's in the future wallahu alam but the other big thing for sisters right which is their primary job i would say is the nurturing of the second generation the next generation right that i think is the primary job right i mean you know if anybody wants to say whatever they say but that's what it is that is what it is and uh, because somebody needs to bring up the second generation who's going to do it right the men I, the men can help but they can't be the primary nurturer in that sense. Men just, just don't, they just lack emotionally. You can say men should do this and should do that and they should do that. Well, good luck to that, right? That's just, it's like trying to say that, uh, you know, in, in the West, um, people let them, let them mix, but let there not be any abuse. It's, it's just not gonna, it's just a very difficult thing to achieve, right? So, um, the women are kitted out. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for them as their primary purpose, which is to be the mothers of the second generation, 
all right? And that's not something that you can really multitask in it. Alhamdulillah, we've either got the, the successful women we've had are either women who've not been married, right? So they're still single and they've got the time to dedicate or those who are married, but are now have older children. So they don't require the same effort because, you know, a child between the ages of, you know, zero to 14, 15 is, mashallah, that's a task. That's a full-time job. May Allah bless and, you know, bless our sisters for that. It's a major job. And that Allah has kitted them out for that. That's what Allah has gave them the right kind of emotion, the right kind of hormones for that to happen. Okay. That's why it's going to be very difficult for them to take time away from that. To, to for, you know, to become a, a Bukhari or a, a Tirmidhi or a Ghazali, you need to spend hours. You need to spend hours, the full day, every other time besides eating and drinking or whatever. Is That's how you become great people like that. And women just cannot do that. And Allah will compensate for them, uh, them for that, right? Allah will compensate them for that. So there you go. Um, uh, in our courses, men and women have the exact same access, right? Exact same access. Yes, we have a we have a veil, right? Because I think that's very important, right? But but they have the exact same access in in the ability to bring up discussions, ask questions, everything. So we've made that we've had to come to you know some very strict and very careful considerations to make sure that they can still benefit but the fitna aspect is curbed because there clearly is always going to be a fitna when men women as the prophet has mentioned so that's what we try to do may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it successful and beneficial but women mashallah when they can they should definitely take some courses because everybody can do that everybody can do it. they may not become and and men they may not become top scholars or whatever that's fine but they can definitely educate themselves because they need the education for their next generation as well. Yes, that's, that's very important and very true there that the education for women are, is definitely very important, mashallah. Now, Muftisab, another area you've been working on, along with the White Thread Institute, you've mentioned it's a postgraduate institute for Muslim scholars. Another really interesting area is, which we'd like to finish on, is White Thread Press, which is your um, publishing house, which is producing high-quality Islamic literature in the Islamic language, and dare I say, probably one of the highest quality Islamic publishing houses, along with others such as Turat Publishing, um, etc., that are producing really good translations, really good uh, publications, inspirational publications that both scholars and laymen can benefit from. So would you share with our listeners your aims and kind of your views when you set up White Thread Press? Why did you set it up? And why did you see it as something very important for the Muslim community to have? Well, I mean, the way it happened is that when we were studying in Darul Ulum Dari, um, we produced a book. Uh, it was just a collection of du'as, but uh, we couldn't find a book that was well referenced. So being a bit pedantic, it was like, we need to produce a collection of du'as with all the proper references and the, you know, make sure that we've got it properly from the sources. So we did that and where we, now you can just, print out photocopies this we did for the younger students we were older students by that time i think we were in the fourth year of the alim program of the six-year program so then we decided hey why don't we just publish it as such you know get it properly done and when you see that happening you know when you get your your first book published it just feels amazing right there's this i don't know it's like something it's quite amazing um then after that 
I uh, um, did the provisions for the seekers, which is Zadu Taribin. I'd actually missed studying that because I'd gone for one year from Darulam. I'd gone to India to study and Darul Ulum, they would teach it in the second year. And when I went to India, they didn't teach it there. So when I came back, I'd missed it. And it was a book I was really looking forward to because it's a collection of hadith, about 300 hadith in there. So I decided that let me do a translation of it. Let me do a self-study and translation of it. So I started doing that. So Alhamdulillah, uh, then there was an issue in those days with people going around telling the Hanafis and others that, hey, the, pray, the way you pray is completely wrong and it's kufr and I don't know, some extreme stuff. The Salafis at that time, they've calmed down quite a bit now, Allah bless them, right? Um, you know, we've got a lot of good people now. Uh, they've calmed down quite a bit. So it was writing a book on the evidences of the Hanafi school. Now, when you write these books, who's going to publish it? The idea is to take it to somebody to publish. Now, I had no idea. Right. For me, it was just like, hey, we need to get it printed. Let's get some money together and print it. So it was never like, hey, let's find a publisher because there was no such thing. I think what benefited me was that Darul Ulum had a magazine that they used to uh, release, I don't know, every month or two months or something like that. So they had kind of a bit of a setup in there of how the whole uh, publishing uh, world works. So maybe I think I benefited from that and I would definitely use their resources. Right. And so we just decided to print. Now, what happened is that when we printed Fikul Imam, I printed a thousand copies. And this was in my fifth year of the course, fourth or fifth year of the course. And it sold out in three months, thousand copies. It's like, wow, your first book, first authorship, right? First authorship in one, three months, thousand copies are gone. That's huge. That's a real inspiration. That's a real encouragement. So then we did the next edition in which we added three other chapters. And this time we did 3,000 copies. And this time it took one year to, um, you know, to go. But that was a real inspiration. I thought this is something, you know, when you see the success of something, then I would say that my, while I teach and do all of these other things, but I think what I wake up for in the morning, right, which is really what I enjoy most is the publishing. And that, that unfortunately, that's everything about publishing. So I waste my time actually in typesetting. I like design. So because when we were, I then moved to America and decided that we should publish the Fikul Imam again. But now by that time I developed, I think quite a bit myself. And I was like the original copies of that, it needs to be updated. It needs to be edited. And so I did a lot of studies on publishing and editing and all of this. And then once it was all ready, I said, okay, now we need to typeset it professionally. I inquired about typesetting prices at that time and somebody quoted me $20 a page for Arabic and English. And I was like, I can't pay that for a 100, 200 page book. How much is that gonna be, right? That's gonna be a huge amount of money. I said, I don't have that kind of money. Let me do it myself. So I started studying typesetting. And Alhamdulillah, I really enjoyed typesetting. I think I'm a bit of an artist. I really enjoy it. I mean, I shouldn't be doing it to be honest because a lot of time that I try to multitask when I do it. Otherwise, somebody else should be doing that. I should just be writing. But anyway, alhamdulillah, I enjoy it thoroughly. Um, so we're very pedantic. It took us three years to republish that book because we tried to make it that I want our books to be able to be accepted in by anybody. Right? Okay, if they don't want it because they don't like the manhajah, they don't like Hanafis, okay, understandable. But anybody, whether academic or a normal person, how do you get that balance? Because a lot of academic books, they're just so high in their expressions that it's almost too exclusive and it's very excluding. 
and then you have some of the very simple kind of simpleton books which people don't enjoy sometimes right so how do you strike the balance of having quality in every aspect design typesetting editing presentation make it palatable welcoming attractive it took a very long time for that right it took a very long time but alhamdulillah alhamdulillah i would say thanks to allah people are appreciating it right and people are appreciating they appreciate a good book and i think people do trust it that if there's a book from white thread they should be able to trust that book so um that's the story of the publishing it's really what gets me out of bed in the morning i think although i actually teach first thing in the morning but yeah that's what it was mashallah from all of your publications uh, which book or books would you recommend to our listeners to maybe start off with from the white thread collection i think um Yes. I'd give them the website and say pick your pick your pick but um if you're married or if you're if you're not married or if you are getting married or recently married or even half way through the marriage book is very important because then you'll have children to get married I think that is because we can stop inshallah we can prevent so much misery from taking place so I think that would be very very important the second book that I would mention is probably the Imam Ghazali's beginning of guidance that I edited and revised that's an amazing book for somebody just to understand what life is all about and what human beings purpose is in this world and what the akhirat is and how to imbibe ourselves and make ourselves as a better human being that's by Imam Ghazali it's a translation which I managed to revise and 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 edited I would put those two out and uh I mean I could a book I really enjoyed reading from White Thread was The Thinking Person's Guide to Islam. Yeah, but that's not a book I've written, right? So I thought you might ask what I wrote. Okay. It's a book that we we published and we uh, we worked on and proofread and edited. But yeah, that is an amazing book for anybody who I benefited from it even though I've been studying Islam for all of these years, I benefited because mashallah Prince Ghazi the author is amazing in number one his thought he's a philosopher anyway and he's a very religious person so the way he explains things and he's i think it's probably one of the best current day modern contemporary books on islam mufti taqi sahab read it and hugely benefited from it uh, sorry hugely praised it and any place that he edited and suggested changes prince ghazi took right because prince ghazi is mashallah just a very open very very decent person in that sense mashallah um and uh, so yeah that's an amazing book you know and especially if you've got friends and you want to talk to them about islam you need to read this book it just even if you don't have non muslim friends it's beneficial just to put in perspective what your islam is right yes of course yes a definitely an amazing book and highly recommended to all of our listeners to get a copy of the thinking person's guide to islam to share with your friends and families and even non muslim friends uh, or even family members inshallah I just want to give credit here to Turath, who is uh, who is basically, we did this together, right? And they deserve as much praise, if not more, actually, for 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 this Turath publishing. We work very very close together, right? We're just different companies, like technically, but we work very close together, right? And uh, may Allah bless Turath and take it from uh, strength to strength. So there's another book that we've also published together by Prince Lazi. So if you're going to get this book. Uh, the thinking person's guide to islam you should also get thinking person guides to our times that really gives an understanding of where we are right now and where we where we may be going because this mashallah the author has a great foresight and insight and is a very prudent individual so get those two books 
inshallah. We actually did invite Brother Yahya onto this show, but however, he is slightly engaged. But inshallah, maybe another time we can have him on and we can talk about um, Tarath publishing too, inshallah. He was actually with me just before, just, just before the, um, he came here. I, if you told me, I would have kept him here and we could have had a good discussion. He said he was a bit shy in front of you, Mufti Saab. <laughs> he can't be shy now. So, um... Inshallah. So Mufti Saab, just to close off, um, could you direct our listeners to where they can find more about your works if they want to have a look more into the work you're doing? I think simple, I mean, is, uh, as I explained, zamzamacademy.com. That's for lectures and everything. You'll find lots of, inshallah, stuff on there. And you can feed back to us if there's some subjects which are missing there. Because one of the things that I try to do is remember trying to find a gap. So if there's a subject that's not being covered sufficiently, I try to deal with that. Even if it's a complex one, I try to dumb it down. Right. So I think one of our flagship lectures on there is about, uh, what do you call it? It's about uh, destiny, trying to make sense of predestination, decree, everything being written, but what's happening in our life. And it's called Don't Be Depressed, You Don't Know Your Future. I would really suggest people listen to that. Currently, we're doing a 30-day Ramadan uh, series on the, all the sciences of the Quran, right? That happens at 5.30 to uh, 6.15, 45 minutes every day. And the second thing I would say is go to whitethread.org. That then takes you to all the rest of our uh, sites, which is the Menstrual Matters for the Sisters, the Fatwa Center, the White Thread Institute for the Scholars, and, uh, and then White Thread Press, which is the business, the books, that is the publishing company, whitethreadpress.com. By the way, that started, I would say, now about 18 years ago. It's much older than White Thread Institute. But the reason for White Thread is because it's the white thread of dawn. It's a Quranic word. Allah says, so eat and drink. Eat and drink until you see the white thread of dawn. So the concept of dawn, a brighter future, you know, the, the rise and the light in the morning. That's where the concept of white thread, it's a very mainstream name like White Chapel, right? So it, it, you're not going to pigeonhole in something. It's a very elegant name. It's got a Quranic uh, basis and a juridical basis as well. So I think it works. I think it works for both. May Allah bless you. Keep us in your du'as. Um, the only way we can work is we get du'as from people. And mashallah, we receive a lot of prayers from people who benefit. We'd love to receive more of your prayers. And again, suggestions and benefits. And if we've made a mistake, we'd love to hear your corrections. We can all make mistakes. So we'd love to hear anything that you might find uh, as a question. You can send it to us as well. And uh, may Allah bless you all. Jazakallah khair for this opportunity. Right? Jazakallah khair for this opportunity while we're fasting. I mean, Jazakallah khair to you, Mufti Saab, for joining us today. We've really benefited uh, from hearing about your various projects today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continue to bless you and all of the works that you are involved in. And we ask you to also remember us in your du'as, inshallah, during this noble month of Ramadan. Would you like to just give some final words to our listeners before we close off? I mean, all I'm going to say is, uh, Jazakallah khair for the opportunity from um, this Ramadan radio. Allah bless you guys. Allah take you from strength to strength and allow this to be the means of huge guidance and uh, widespread guidance, inshallah, and protect you. Uh, for our listeners, Jazakallah khair for listening. I would say this is Ramadan and there is absolutely no time to waste in Ramadan. But the best way to get the best out of your Ramadan is to schedule it. Number one, schedule. Number two, 
compare, we don't want to just do the same Ramadan we did the last 10 years. We want this Ramadan to be better than any Ramadan before it. So number one, we make dua, oh Allah, make this Ramadan better than any Ramadan before it. Make us closer to you than we've ever been before. And above all, allow us to stay close to you after Ramadan as well, which is the most important. Keep this dua up. And number two, just see what you did last year, the last few years, and just schedule even more. If you've given some charity, give more charity this year. If you've prayed this much Quran, do more. If you've done this much, then reflect more on the Quran and, and so on and so forth. So may Allah accept and remove this pandemic from us. God bless you all. And we'll see you somewhere on Zamzam Academy or Rayyan Institute. Go and sign up for one of the courses there or through one of our books, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So respected listeners, there we have it. We've heard from Mufti Abdurrahman, alhamdulillah. Please do join us again next week at the same time where we will be joined by Sheikh Omar Hajjaj of Yasin Youth Development, where we will be discussing his various efforts, uh, particularly related to the youth in London. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair for listening. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, bless you. And if you're finding this useful, you know, um, uh, as they say, do that like button and subscribe button and forward it on to others. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.